Today in the garage, we have Daryl Singer. Daryl heads up Diamond and Diamond's commercial and civil litigation practice group while continuing to run a sizable personal injury practice. Today we enjoyed hearing from Daryl about his story, ethics, and professional responsibility as a lawyer. Whether you're driving a Slate Grade 5 series, picking up your washburn, or bringing an application under Section 8 of the SPPA, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it to them. Daryl, we've known each other for over 25 years. Good to see you again. I see it's hard to believe it goes like that. I thank you for coming. I would love to talk to you a little bit uh, so that our audience understands what it is like to be a lawyer after 25 years. And to uh, and, and anyone who knows you sees it in your face that you're always excited and willing to help. And so I want to ask you questions about, you know, how do you establish a work-life balance and how do you practice for years and years with the goal of being a good lawyer, a well-balanced lawyer, and an ethical lawyer? Well, I think it's fair to say I wasn't always a well... I was always an ethical lawyer, I'll make that clear, but I wasn't always a well-balanced lawyer. And uh, if you want me to get in, you, you know certainly my story. Um, I started practicing in 1993, and uh, by 2007, I was in the throes of a, of a horrific uh, Oxycontin and narcotic addiction, and it, it I basically burned right out. And at the beginning of 2009, I closed my practice. I was a sole practitioner at that time. I had been very busy. I had risen over you know, 15, 16 years in practice to relatively great heights for considering, you know, what I came from. I wasn't part of a firm. I'd always sort of been in small firms or had my own practice. And I built a really nice practice. I made a nice living. I had a nice family. Um, and things were, were going pretty well. But I wasn't balanced. And that led me to be really, really unhappy and not even realize for many years how unhappy I was. And it certainly impacted my first two marriages because I was never home. It's very hard to maintain a good family life when you're working 100 hours a week and you're putting your clients and your partners and your practice before your family. So that led to great strife at home. It led to a divorce. It led to a second divorce. Um, ultimately, it led to tremendous unhappiness because I wasn't taking care of myself. So I wasn't healthy physically. I wasn't healthy mentally. And although I was still getting up and going to work and doing a good job for my clients, and clients were happy enough to bring more work and send referrals, and lawyers like yourself and others were said, hey, this is a good lawyer. We'll send him files. Um, but I wasn't in a happy place. And ultimately, um, what ended up happening at some point in the early 2000s, I don't know when, maybe 2004, 2005, was I started, as sadly we know now so many of our colleagues do, to self-medicate. And I decided that the way to deal with it was to just take what was there. And I suffered, I have and continue to suffer from migraines my whole life. I'm 53. I've had migraines since I was 10 years old. And there was a thankfully now discredited uh, pain management technique that the uh, chronic pain doctors used to use starting in around 99, 2000, which was to say, we're going to take these narcotics, these very, very heavy narcotics, which for people who don't understand the, the idea of narcotics, picture basically, it's just legalized heroin. Essentially, you're take you're getting heroin. It's a prescription for heroin in a pill form. That's really what it is. 
And the idea was rather than giving you these painkillers for breakthrough pain, when you had a migraine that where you couldn't get out of bed and you needed it to go to work, they said, we're going to give you something called opioid therapy. And opioid therapy, the idea was you would take it, take these narcotics prophylactically. Now, and we now know, I mean, Purdue Pharma in the States, the makers of OxyContin has now gone bankrupt under the weight of all the class action lawsuits in the States. So I certainly wasn't the only one to get addicted to these drugs as a result of, of uh, you know, the nature, the, the addictive nature of the drug and the opioid therapy. But for me, and I don't blame my doctors for this, I didn't take it just prophylactically for the migraines or just for breakthrough pain. I took it the way... As, as we said, many of our colleagues will take some sort of substance. It was to deal with the pressures. It was to deal with the, you know, the pressures of being a boss and having to meet a payroll, the pressures of having to meet court deadlines, the pressures of filling out all those forms that we have to fill out as lawyers. And it really becomes, as you know, running your own firm, it, it's a big weight on your shoulders. And for me, at a very, you know, at a young age, um, it at some times was just overwhelming. And it was the and and I would self-medicate and I would wake up in the morning and say, well, the only way I could go to court is if I take these drugs. And then at the lunch break, I would I I, I have vivid memories of sitting, you know, in, in in whatever courthouse I was in, and every courthouse lawyer's lounge has a, a couch. And I would often go in at the lunch break, and instead of eating lunch, I would take some more narcotics and just go lie down and sort of get that that. I don't know how to describe it, but people who have, you know, shot up will tell you that it's just this feeling of like warmth that washes over you. And that would allow me to go for the afternoon in court. And then in order to go on to my meetings in the evening, I would, and, it, and it just ultimately what happens is your body builds up a tolerance and you need more and more and more and more of these narcotics in order to, to function. And the, the irony of the whole thing is, is that they don't actually prevent your chronic pain, in my case, migraines, but same thing happens with people who are given them, you know, today, my car accident clients are prescribed these by doctors for their back pain. And I say to them, stay away, <laughs> don't touch these drugs. And they say, my back pain, I go, no, 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 your back pain will go away if you stop taking them. The irony is that when you take these painkillers, they actually make your pain worse. And they add, they cause depression, they cause anxiety. And so in my case, it just... That was how I functioned for a number of years, and I, I would certainly say that I was a functioning addict, although I think uh, my ex-wife and some of my partners around me would have said uh, I was not a functioning addict. I thought I was a functioning addict, right? And, and many of my friends and family tried to help me, and as I say, addicts lie to everybody, but mostly addicts lie to themselves. And so finally, by... The end of 2008, I went to what was then, uh, now it's called the Members Assistance Program. Uh, it was then called the Ontario Lawyers Assistance Program, run by a fantastic guy, I'll give them a pug, Duran Gold. Duran Gold, who you know, and Duran was running the, the well, what was then OLAP and now runs MAP on behalf of the Law Society. And I went to Duran, who I, by coincidence, happened to have known probably since we were teenagers. And I said, I, I need help. And he said, you have to close your practice. And I said, how am I going to close my practice? I just got divorced. I got, I got three little kids. Like, how am I going to close my practice? I got, I got a mortgage to pay. I got active files. And he looked at me and he said, if you don't close your practice, you're going to die. It's that simple. And there was no sugarcoating it. And 
I closed my practice for almost all of two, all of 2009. So this was somewhere around the beginning of 2009. And I came back to practice clean, drug-free, depression-free, starting to be happy and healthy uh, on the 15th of January, 2010. So we're now just over 10 years. And Doran helped you through this terrible period of time. You close your practice, you come back, and you got to start over. You got to start over under this cloud of people talking. How did you do it? Uh, so I got out in front of the story. And I mean, you know that I spent the last 10 years going out and speaking to every legal organization imaginable that invites me. I never turned down an invitation to speak. I've spoken at some of the largest law firms on Bay Street. I've spoken for the Law Society of Ontario. I've spoken for the Federation of Law Societies, the Federation of Law Associations. I've spoken all over the country on this stuff. I've written publicly about it. I've been on national media about it. Um, and it started because I wanted to get out in front of the story. I remember I came back in 2010 and, and the result was, um, the Law Society complaints process moves very slowly. So although by the middle of 2010, I was healthy, I was already rebuilding a practice, I fell into, uh, just by luck, you know, you're a lot of, we work hard, but there's a lot of luck that's involved. And I had some very good friends who had a personal injury firm, and it just so happened that a lawyer in that firm had left. And they said, look, come partner up with us, and we'll give you, you know, we'll give you 300 personal injury files. And I said... I'm a civil litigator, but that's probably the only type of civil litigation I've never done in 17 years is personal injury. And they said, but you're a trial lawyer. You know how to do a motion. You know how to run a trial. That's the skill we need. We'll teach you the personal injury side. And so they gave me all of these files. And then about halfway through that year, I was in front of the Law Society for things that happened in 2008 while I was in the throes of my addiction. Uh, and the standard not replying to clients, not cooperating with the Law Society's investigation. Thankfully, I didn't, there was no trust accounting issues. I had never messed with my trust account, even in the worst and most difficult situations. And we can talk about that after we get in sort of the ethical stuff. But I had never touched any trust money that didn't belong to me, and my trust account was in order and in good standing. So it was just the, the not to diminish the seriousness, but it was that uh, I think the charges I was, I was brought to the tribunal on were failure to cooperate with an investigation at the Law Society, failure to reply to Law Society communications. But I was already fine and healthy by that point. But because the process takes two and a half years, um, there I was six months into my new practice and they go, okay, you're going to have a 30-day suspension. Um, and that was really the way I dealt with it was to say, I'm going to get out in front of this story, right? Um, and so I wrote the first story, um, I believe it was for the Hamilton Lawyers Association, they do a quarterly journal. And I wrote an article about my story. And I think I was asked to do that by Duran. It was something that the, the Ontario Lawyers Assistance Program was trying to get the message out there that we want real people's stories because most lawyers who go through it don't talk about it. And I said, great. I put my hand up right away and said, I'll write my story. And that's resulted over the last 10 years in just a constant stream of uh, invitations to speak. And I've just gotten out there and I speak and I talk about it. And in doing so, um, what started out as a way to sort of get ahead and manage manage my press um, has turned into something where I realize I've done an awful lot of good and I've helped an awful lot of people over the years. So getting out in front of it, actually, it's helped you become the leader yes. for our profession. 
Um, and, and you deserve a tremendous amount of credit because people are so fearful to open up this discussion. They're afraid to come forward and say, I got an issue, I got a problem. Uh, our profession needs to know that there are people out there like Doran, that the MAP program is available, and you shouldn't be embarrassed. You should be able to get out there and help. And, and through your leadership, the message has been able to be uh, disseminated. Yeah, and it's an important message because there there is... Uh, it's less so now, thankfully, um, but there certainly was and remains a stigma around saying, hey, I'm you know, I'm a lawyer. And, and, and as a lawyer, our job is to take on, you come to me and hire me, my job is to take on your problem. Who wants to hire the guy to take on their problem when that guy can't handle his own life, right? So there's a stigma around it. There's a stigma around, and I didn't seek help early on. I should have sought help in 2007. It shouldn't have been two and a half years in before I sought help, right? But had I sought help, I don't know. I, I don't look back and say, gee, I should have sought help in 2007. I'm happy it went the way it did because I felt for me, if I had sought help before I hit rock bottom, I don't know that the help would have been as effective. And I don't know that I would have um, moved forward with my life and my career in a much more positive way because I realize in retrospect, like a lot of us in this profession, Although I was on the outside, anybody looking in would go, wow, that guy's successful, right? That guy lives in a nice house. He drives a nice car. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got beautiful kids. He's making, I was miserable. I was miserable. I was doing areas of law I didn't like. I practiced as, you know, as you know, I did a lot of family law for many years. It was horrible. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was absolutely awful. When I, I, I spoke to the Law Society's annual family law conference a couple of years ago, and I opened my speech by saying there were, I think, 900 family lawyers in the room, and I opened my speech by saying, um, I don't believe that being a family lawyer made me an addict, but sure as heck didn't help, right? It's a horrible, but, but, but I was doing it as many of us do because we don't find the area of law we're passionate about. We find the area of law we fall into, right? And, and, and that was the mistake and I wasn't happy as a person. And so, um, but what I tell people is if you're going through this addiction, depression, anxiety, alcoholism, whatever it is, seek help, get help. There's tons of people now. I'm now not the only one. When I started doing this, there were three of us who spoke about this, right? There was myself, there was Michael Bryant, and there was Orlando De Silva. There's lots of us now that are speaking. It's not just the three of us. There's lots of people now out there saying, I went through this, I survived it, let me help you. So reach out and get the help because my story, and I tell my story to say, it doesn't matter how far down the hole you go, if you manage it right and you get help, you can get back to the top of that mountain. And you can and you have. Yeah. So going forward, uh, when people ask you, you know, how do I deal with my work-life balance? How do I create those boundaries? What do you tell them? So you've got to be very, very, and, and the boundaries are different for everyone. I can tell you what my boundaries are, and maybe I don't have the same boundaries as other people. Maybe I have less boundaries, but they work for me. Everybody's got to find what their own boundary is um, and then not waver on it, right? And I think that's the mistake. We all say, okay, I'm not going to take calls from clients on weekends because that's my time with my kids. And then we all end up taking calls on the weekend. So for me, I've used technology to my advantage. Um, so I'm always on my cell phone. I'm always answering email. But at the same time, 
I'm very rarely in the office. I mean, even pre-COVID, right? I, I'm able to leave my office at three o'clock and go pick my daughter up at school and take her to her dance rehearsal. If there's a dance competition out of town or a baseball tournament for my son out of town, I'm gone Thursday to Sunday. And I have the ability to say I can do that because I will take my phone, I will take my computer and I'll pocket out some time and say, okay, from this time in the morning when I wake up for an hour, I'm going to answer email. But for the rest of the day, I don't care that it's a Thursday and I'll deal with whatever comes in at four o'clock between four and five. So I parcel out time in the middle of the day. Even now, one of the things I've been doing working at home for the last four months and I haven't stopped. Thank God. We're very, very busy. I continue to work. I'm doing mediations, discoveries, everything on Zoom. Um, but if I want to run an errand, I'll take a break in the middle of the day and go do that. And I find that, so for me, that works. Rather than saying, I'm going to work only till five o'clock and then at five o'clock, I'll do my other stuff. I'll say, I'm going to take a break between one and three. I'm fine if I work till eight o'clock tonight, but I'm going to take the break between one and three. And during that time when I'm running, my, you know, going to the grocery store, I'm not going to answer email. I'm not answering my phone. And so that works for me. For some people, it doesn't. They need a time where they can say, I'm, I, I need to stop work. Find your own boundaries, but whatever they are, you have to find the boundaries. The other thing I would say is it's very important and maybe more important for guys our age than guys in their and women in their 20s, but the eating right and exercising thing can't be overstated. And sleeping. At, at, at this stage, yeah. You know, I used to work till three in the morning and on a, on a, you know, preparing for court and go to bed and get up at six and schlep from the suburbs all the way downtown. I can't do that. I need a full night's sleep. I need to eat right. I need to exercise. Um, I, I don't, it, that applies to anybody, but certainly for people that are much younger, um, it's not as important. But it really does make a difference. I, for a number of years, and I'll go back to it once COVID is over, I take boxing lessons. And I would often schedule my boxing lessons over the lunch break. Like if I weren't in court, if it were if it were an office day, and in the middle of the day, I will go off and go to the boxing gym and get in the ring and spar for an hour. And I'll tell you, I go back and it feels like I'm a new person. Like there's just, and doing that in the middle of the day versus doing that at 7.30 at night is very, very helpful. If, if I don't do it at night, I'll do it. I have a little gym in my basement and I'll go and work out uh, at 6.30 in the morning. So right. people, people out there in the audience that might be listening may be saying, okay, that's great, but I'm worried. I'm worried I'm not going to be able to deliver for my clients. I'm worried I'm not going to meet my professional obligations. What do you say to them? I, I say, I could, it's easy. You know what? It's easy for me to say, don't worry. Right. And, and you said when we started this, that, you know, having practiced for as many years as I have, it's easier. Like I find being a lawyer much easier now than I did 15 years ago or 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. With experience comes that comfort level. I'm at a stage where I'm not worried. If a client is unhappy because I don't return their call quickly enough, they can go to another lawyer. I have enough work. I'm not. So it's, it, it wouldn't be right for me to say to the young lawyer starting out trying to get as many clients as she can in order to pay the bills, don't worry. I can afford not to worry. Maybe that newly called lawyer who's trying to build up her criminal law practice needs to worry. And I'm not going to say don't worry. I'm going to say worry about it, but worry within reason. Worry within reason and, and you know, mark out these, these boundaries. Parcel out the times in your day. If you had top three things to tell uh, young lawyers that are new to the bar, 
what they should be thinking of to ensure that they have a good work-life balance, what would they be? Put things like going, and different things work for different people, right? Some people meditate, some people do yoga, some people go to the gym, some people play pickup. You know, I have a partner whose thing is pickup basketball. Every Wednesday night, he plays with the same group of guys at the same gym, and they play pickup, and he never misses that. It doesn't matter how busy things are. Um, So whatever it is that works for you, but make it a calendared event, I find that that it works for me, even just to say, okay, Tuesday and Thursday, I'm going to work out in the gym in my basement. If I don't write it in my phone, in my calendar, 6.30 workout, it somehow doesn't get done. So we are driven as lawyers by calendars and to-do lists and tickler systems. Put this right into your tickler system. Put it right into your calendar. So I would say that's number one. Number two, find something, whatever it is. Again, everybody has, what works for me might not work for you. Your interests are different than mine. But find an interest outside of the practice of law. So I read nonfiction. I read, I, I always say if I weren't a lawyer, I think I would have been a sociology professor. I'm fascinated by by anthropology and sociological culture. And I'm reading those books all the time. And for me, that's a break. If I spend an hour at night or 20 minutes on my lunch break while I'm eating a sandwich, reading something that doesn't have anything to do with the practice of law. But people don't do that. I can tell you, and and you know, we have so many colleagues who 25 years out will tell you the last time they read for pleasure was when they were in undergrad. (laughs) Never mind law school, right? Because all we do is read our own cases and we're not reading our own cases we're on canley and westlaw reading the new cases that come out and find so i do encourage people read for uh for pleasure whatever it is you like to read if you want to just read the news but whatever it is you watch youtube for half an hour a day do something that gets your mind so not just the physical stuff we're talking about like working out but something that gets your mind off of the law Sounds like That's fun. Cheap. I know. I know. I love reading about cars. Right. And hence the garage. Right. But I, I read about all these different cars. Don't want to buy them. Don't want to own them. But I love the different interesting details. And it takes my mind off the practice. I, I hear exactly what you're 100%. saying. My new thing is, um, I'm uh, as soon as COVID is finished, I actually have a friend who's a, a, a magician. And I'm going to start to learn some card <laughs> tricks. And that's going to be my thing. I'm going to start to learn some card tricks. And uh, Juries just, better watch out. Just, but just for fun. And, and that's something that I think really psychologically, just to be able to say, okay, for 20 minutes a day, I'm going to go in a room and close the door and just practice these these tricks. That's something that I think is really important and something I'm really looking forward to doing. So we want to ensure that lawyers not only figure out their work-life balance, but they have to know that this is a profession. It's not about them individually. We're part of a group. And uh, there's mentorship and there's others uh, uh, who are there a phone call away uh, because we have to all strive to be an ethical lawyer or to be the ethical lawyer. What advice do you have for new lawyers so that they can realize that each and every day ethics will be knocking at the door and there'll be questions for them to answer and they're not alone on their path through their career. So I think we often in our profession, when we talk about ethics and certainly when we teach ethics at law school, it's all about things like 
don't steal money from your trust account. I mean, those are the, you know, that's the obvious one, right? Don't cheat your clients. Don't lie to the court. Don't swear false affidavits. But that's really just the surface. And to me, that's the common sense stuff. And, and you know, weed out the people that don't do that. I think being an ethical lawyer goes beyond that. It's about making decisions in the day-to-day of your practice that aren't about you. They're about the best interests of your client. And I know when I teach... Uh, uh, you know, when I teach ethics to law students, they look at me because I say, this is what ethics is. It's doing what's right for your client over your self-interest. And they look at me like I have two heads because they go, well, yeah, that's obvious, but it's not. I've represented a lot of lawyers at the discipline tribunal where uh, it wasn't so obvious to them. And so, so the way it, I'll tell you how it operates in my practice as a personal injury lawyer, almost every single day, you have a settlement offer on the table. And I'll give you two examples because I have a personal injury practice, which is a contingency-based practice. And then part of my practice is, is a, a civil and commercial litigation practice where the clients are paying as they go. And here's a, a very typical example that lawyers run into. And I see lawyers every day who don't do it right, in my, in my opinion, in terms of ethical lawyering. Um, if you hire me, you've had a car accident, and you hire me, and I agree I'm going to take a 33% success fee contingency. So if I don't settle your case, I don't get any money. But I get the same 33% whether I settle your case with one letter to the insurance company and they just happen to come to the table. And Well, that doesn't happen so much anymore. But, but you know, if I settle your case just before the discovery, I get the same amount of money as if I settle it six months later at a mediation having gone through two days of discovery. And so lawyers are often faced with this quandary where there might be a number on the table and as a lawyer you're saying well wait a minute if I settle this now I've only got 10 hours into this file this is a really good profit margin if I have to go to discovery and then I have to go to mediation and it doesn't settle and I go to pretrial even if I get a little bit more money down the road now my profit margin is is eroded because I've had to put that many more hours into the file right and so there's there's you face that every single day and, and the ethical thing is you've got to do what's right for your client. And maybe what's right for your client is to turn down. I turn down offers all the time that would seem like a lot of money. And when you're turning down two or $300,000 as an offer because you know the case is worth $800,000, um, that's the ethical thing to do. But on the other hand, if I get $300,000 today, I'm going to make a hundred grand on that, right? And so you're, you're and I see lawyers, you know, sort of railroading their clients into settlements. You know, on the other side of the coin, where you have uh, clients paying you uh, as you go, the incentive is in the inverse, right? The incentive is not to settle when you can settle early because you're going to bill less than if I take this through two days of discovery and a day of mediation and maybe even three days of a, of a five-day trial and then settle it on the same terms. And I see lawyers every day making the wrong decisions. They're making the decision that's best for them economically. And it's easy to justify. I mean, the reality is it's easy to justify to sit there and say, well, nobody knows what's going to, we don't have a crystal ball. This is certain. We don't know what happens in the future. The, the ethical lawyer is really one who assesses the file properly and says, look, we're going to take this offer or not take this offer based on what's in the client's best interest. And if it means I make less money by going forward or I make more, that's, so that's a really, really important thing. Um, that certainly that's a day-to-day -day thing that every lawyer in my firm deals with.
So during the bar ads, the 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 students, uh, new calls, all have to review the rules of professional conduct, and you know they get called to the bar and they may not remember what they are. How how do how do you suggest that they keep familiar with their obligation to law society, understand what the rules are, and keep abreast of uh, the different and changing laws? I think they need to follow up every year and reread those rules. Most lawyers don't read the rules of professional conduct after they've passed their bar exam. They just don't. And most lawyers don't really spend a lot of time, even if they're doing a CPD program on ethics, they're probably on their phone emailing clients while they're sort of listening with one ear. Um, it's really important. I mean, the same way that, that you would sit down and prepare for a case by reading all of the recent cases and the new legislation, you've got to do the same thing. I recommend lawyers do it every year as a refresher. It's, I, I don't have to just because I work in this field dealing with you know, helping lawyers and, and representing lawyers at the tribunal. So I don't, but, but if I weren't, I would certainly be reviewing those rules. But I think when we talk about ethical lawyering, in my mind, it goes above and beyond. It's not just what the rules of professional conduct say, because there's a lot of lawyers that I would say are unethical, but who haven't done anything that technically violates the rules of conduct, right? So I think it's, it's, it, it's bigger than you. It's about this idea of, I think it goes, if, if I can, if I can draw from, from sort of my, my Hebrew school studies, like Talmudically, this idea in Judaism of tikkun olam, the idea of leaving the world in a better place than you found it. I believe that very strongly, as, as many lawyers, ethical lawyers do, leaving the profession better than you found it. And there are lawyers, and, and, and by that I mean I feel it incumbent upon me, no matter how busy I am in my practice, no matter how busy I am with my family, it's incumbent upon me to mentor young lawyers. It's incumbent upon me when I'm invited to come and give a talk or come here to not say no, no matter how busy I am. Like those things to me are an obligation within the profession. It's really important to do. And I, I do, pro bono is another example. Um, there's a, 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 a judge, uh, a superior court judge, who I think we both know quite well, and he says whenever he talks about pro bono, he says he believes that every lawyer in this province should be doing 15% of their billable hours in pro bono. I, I believe that very strongly, and I try to do that every year. I think last year I was at 10%, but I also had years where I was at 20, so it averages out. I think it is important. I think the idea of saying it's not just about me as a lawyer, it's not just about my business as a lawyer or client A or client B or my law partners, it's about the profession as a whole. And you look at the people that are 20 years ahead of us who are the leaders in this profession. And the one thing they all have in common is, is when you talk about like the great criminal lawyers, the great civil litigators in our profession, right? We talk about the guys like Brian Greenspan or Johnny Rosen or on the civil bar, guys like Ron Slatt, Malcolm Mercer, Sheila Block. These are people that are not just amazing lawyers. These are people who devote hundreds of hours a year to teaching and mentoring and making the profession better for everybody. Those are my role models. It's interesting because you did bring up mentorship and um, I'm worried that young lawyers don't realize they can reach out. I know that when I started, I, I, I was in a, 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 it was in the new market courthouse in the cafeteria and I was preparing a cross-examination and by chance this young lawyer, uh, 
who uh, was called a couple years ahead of me. Uh, Janet Leeper was there, now Superior Court Justice. And she said, oh, what's going on? You got a criminal case? And she uh, started a conversation that turned into a mentorship relationship. She helped mentor my whole career. Um, it, it, people have to know they can reach out. And, and I think what's different, and it requires more effort now than it did when we were starting out, because what's different is we were in the courts all the time, and particularly for civil. For criminal, the lawyers are still in court most of the time. But on the civil side, what's changed is this push towards alternate dispute resolution. And so whereas as a young lawyer doing civil cases, I was still in that, you know, I was in that new market court all the time. And so when you're in court all the time, you're in the lawyer's lounge, there's people around. And it was very easy. Mentors just developed. It wasn't, you didn't have to look for them because you were all sitting there around the same couches at lunchtime in the new market lawyer's lounge. But in Toronto, for example, it's much harder because the lawyers are based downtown and they just go back to their offices at lunch. So in the, I think two things. In the smaller centers outside of Toronto, the mentorship might be easier to find because there is that sort of coalescing around the lawyer's lounge that we don't have in Toronto. But I also think that's easier now for criminal lawyers than say for civil or family lawyers who just aren't in court nearly as frequently. So what young lawyers today have to do that we didn't is they have to make an effort to really reach out. And maybe it's a young criminal lawyer who's got a difficult case and knows Paul Cooper's reputation and looks up your number, looks up your website and calls you up and says, hey, I, I don't know the answer to this question. Can you help me? I can tell you that I get calls like that from young lawyers all the time. I never say no. And I'll tell you something, even at 25 years out, there's people I call who are 35 years out and I get stuck in problems and I go, you know, I don't, I don't remember. I haven't dealt with this in 10 years. I don't remember the answer. And I will pick up the phone. And sometimes I'm calling a lawyer I've never met before just because that happens to be somebody who I know by reputation is a leader in that particular area of law. In my career, I don't think I've ever had and I'm going back from day one, I don't think I've ever had a senior lawyer say, I'm sorry, I can't answer your question. Who are you to call me? And I don't think I've ever said that to anybody. So what young lawyers should be doing on, on two areas, both the substantive law, well, three areas, the substantive law, the business of law, and then this other thing that we started off talking about, which is the concept of work-life balance. It doesn't matter. Whatever you need help on, reach out and there's enough people that you can find everybody knows if you want to know who again who the leaders are in mental health you know just do a google search you'll get my name and orlando's name and Duran's name and you know, call us we'll help you right if you're looking for criminal or civil or person it's out there so the lawyers have and people are afraid to do that so this is what i would say to young lawyers don't be afraid we as senior lawyers and i there's a there's the ethical lawyering component but there's also, I think, a certain amount of ego. Like, I feel quite gratified when somebody calls me and says, I know you're an expert in this area of law. How am I going to say no at that point? How am I going to say, I'm not going to help you? You've just told me I'm the expert. Of course I'm going to help you. It's, it's sort of the secret to our profession. And once you're in it and you start to realize you're not alone, you may be practicing on your own, but you're not alone. You can reach out. There are times when some lawyers find themselves in a difficult situation or they have a difficult question and they haven't reached out. And now it's become something that grows bigger and bigger. 
lost society comes knocking or they should be calling a lost society. What advice do you give them? So once you realize you're in a predicament, report yourself before they find out. I would say that. If you find there's some shortfall in your trust account and it was an error, maybe call the law society and just say, this is what happened. This is how I propose to fix it. If it's a client issue, if it, I mean, you know, lawyers make mistakes. For example, in a civil case, they'll miss a limitation period, which could result in being sued. And we have insurance for that, but they don't report themselves to the insurance company. You know, we have an obligation under our our, our professional malpractice policy to report any known or potential claim. So if I miss a limitation period as a civil lawyer, whether that client sues me or not, I need to let law pro know and say, hey, I missed this limitation period. Maybe nothing's going to come of it. The client hasn't said they're doing anything, but I'm putting you on notice in case I need your help. Um, and, I, and, and by the way, they jump in and try and correct the problem very quickly for you uh, to say, okay, let's see what we can do. Maybe we can solve this. Um, it's the same with the law society. I think that you need to, you are always better to admit your mistake and try and fix it than to hide your mistake and have somebody else find out about it. And don't freeze. Right. Please don't freeze, right? You right. can't have a young person out there worried about whatever the mistake is and just break down. Um, I know that uh, you're there to help. There's so many other lawyers uh, that are out in the profession that are more than happy to help. The worst thing that you can do is not cooperate, not uh, uh, move the ball forward, call a lawyer, get some help, start with you know, uh, just reaching out to somebody who can uh, potentially put you onto a lawyer to help you if you really need to hire or retain somebody. And I would say this, if you're in trouble with the law society, don't do it by yourself. Don't think because you're a lawyer, you can do it by yourself, right? That old, what's that old Shakespeare quote? He who, has, <laughs> he who represents himself as a, in court as a fool for a lawyer. And lawyers are the worst at that. Lawyers like to represent themselves. Um, I've held fast through my career when I've had to be involved in litigation. Um, I've hired a lawyer who wasn't part of my firm. I've always gone to outside counsel. Um, I tell people when you're in trouble with the law society, reach out, get a lawyer who can help you. Don't think you can do it yourself. And I, you know, I sit and I read every single discipline decision that comes out of the law society tribunal. And my running count is about 60% of, of the cases I read that people are self-represented. And sometimes I read that and I say, my gosh, I could have gotten this person a better deal because they, they, you're in the thick of it. You've already messed up for whatever reason. Maybe you were in over your head on a file. Maybe you've got a mental health issue or an addiction or some family, pressure. whatever the situation is, you're already in a mess. The last thing you want to do is try and get your way out of that mess against the law society, which has, you know, infinite resources to prosecute you. So get help. Reach out and get help. That's a message that everybody has to hear and realize that it's okay to call for help. It's always okay. There's no shame in asking for help. The shame is in not getting the help. Today, we've had the privilege of having Daryl join us. Um, it's time for us to ask you if you want to plug yourself, plug the firm, well, your so experienced litigator. 
well, if I, you know, if I get a free plug, I'm sure my colleagues will be happy for that because we spent an awful lot of money on billboards and bus ads. <laughs> so I'm the head of commercial and civil litigation at Diamond and Diamond Lawyers in Toronto. Our website is diamondlaw.ca. My personal website, if you ever need to reach out to me, is darylsinger.com. I'm easy to find. Just Google me, Google my firm. We're all over the place. And reach out if we can help you uh, uh, with, with anything at all. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia, Sefna, and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.